crank it up. Okay, so here we go. Second coming. He's already come the first time. That's what Christmas is all about. Um, oh, gosh, I've got Eric doing sound and the, uh, the stuff up here. Okay, so give me the first slide here, Eric. All right, so what we said was, talented man in the back. Bible begins with, yeah, thank you. All right, to just bring us up to speed, Bible begins with God living on earth with man. The whole Bible is essentially the story of God trying to restore that broken relationship. And uh, God, fortunately for us, outlines how he's going to bring things to full conclusion, and that's where we want to camp today. It doesn't come from a single passage, but there are a series of different authors that give us snippets or pictures or a little window shot into what's going to happen. So we're going to try to piece it all together for us to get a picture of what is going to happen at the very end. Let's go to this next slide. Here's what the end times, well, let's start at the very beginning. I didn't realize I had all this. Creation starts, God living on earth with man, everything's perfect, it's just as he wants. Go again. Then we have sin introduced, that relationship is broken. Then we go into the present evil age, which we talked about, that's the time in which we live right now. Then down here we have seven years of tribulation. Last week, we talked about Matthew 24, which gave us some indication of what's going to transpire that we can have clues into when this period of time is coming. And then, right in the middle of that, was that thing that Jesus talked about as the abomination of desolation, which Daniel talked about, which we looked at, which was essentially when the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple of God and desecrates it. What's next on this? Does that go to the next? Okay, so right about that time, that's the Matthew 24 passage. That's what we talked about last week. Today, what I want to talk about is what comes right after this. We're not going to get bogged down in all of the details of this particular period of time because I don't want to run out of time before Jesus gets back, right? So we want to go to the next thing. If you want to catch up on this, go to iTunes, go to our website. You can pick up where we left off last week. But we're going to move on because last week we talked about what gets us to where we want. Today, I want to jump into what the final trumpet is, the actual return of Jesus, and what comes following that. Now, remember, through this series, we said that those people who are dead, the Bible talks about them as being asleep. When Christ comes back, that's going to be an awakening, a resurrection, And we were promised eternal life. Last week we said this, that eternal life is literally, in the Greek words, life in the coming age. As you saw in the timeline, we live in this present evil age. There is a coming age. It is a promised life in that age that is eternal life. All right, so here's where we're going today from the last part of the other slide. Then we get into, right here, Jesus comes back. Now, there's some discussion about whether he comes back at the front of that little section, the middle of that section, or the end of that section. I'll dabble in that just briefly. But then from there, there's a thousand years, and then we have judgment at the end. The Bible talks about two resurrections. There's a resurrection of Christians, which we'll talk about when Jesus comes back. There's a resurrection at the judgment at the end. And then eternity begins, the coming age what Jesus refers to as the kingdom of God. All right, so that's the the overview of where we're going today. So let's come back to the very beginning here to talk about the first resurrection. That happens when Christ comes back. This is a picture that Paul paints for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Here's what he says. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive which means when Jesus comes back, there's still a bunch of people walking around on the face of the earth. 
Those who are left until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So in Paul's understanding, everybody who's dead is still a dead. They're asleep until Jesus comes back. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. What we will find is, I believe that this trumpet call of God is referring to the seventh of a series of seven trumpets, which you can find in the book of Revelation. We won't get into that just right now. But then in verse 17, after that, the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll be with them forever. Now, here's what I want to point out about that trumpet, and this is the briefest overview that I could possibly give you. But if you look here in this tribulation of seven years, go ahead and fill that whole thing out. Dan, or Revelation talks about there are seven seals that are unleashed on the world, and then the seventh seal, it opens up, and there are seven trumpets sounded. That seventh trumpet is when Christ comes back. At the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise, and that seventh trumpet then unleashes seven bowls of wrath. Now, briefly and ever so briefly, let me explain that when Jesus comes back there, there are some scriptures that say that believers won't suffer the wrath of God. And here in 1 Thessalonians, it says that the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are still left alive will be caught up together with him in the air. There's lots of discussion among scholars about what happens in that time frame. Let me just suggest the possibility that it is during that time when Jesus catches us up in the air that God unleashes the seven bowls of wrath on the planet, and we don't go through that. But at the end of that, we then return to the earth, and then we'll see what the rest happens today. Now, is this where I wanted to talk about that? No. Okay, then verse 18, he says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In other words, guys, there's something really to look forward to, that the world in which we live that is so broken is not where it ends. There is something more to come. And we will not achieve perfection until that day when Christ returns. Now, it's really nice that he says we're going to be resurrected, but what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, Paul gives us an indication in 1 Corinthians verse, or chapter 15. He says, listen, I tell you a mystery, because nobody really knows what it's like, right? I mean, we think we know, but Paul's going to explain to us what happens. We will not all sleep. Again, Scripture talking about death as a sleep. But we will all be changed. In other words, your size whatever now will not be your size forever, even if you think it will be. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at what? The last trumpet. Again, I believe it's a reference to the seventh trumpet of Revelation. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. In other words, the body that you have is perishable, right? We get pneumonia, we get cancer, we come down with diabetes, we have blood clots, we get strokes, we age, we fall apart. Our lives, our bodies are perishable, but we will be clothed with imperishable. He says, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And of course, we know that we are mortal. Therefore, he says, stand firm. 
Let nothing move you. And he's not saying in a location, but emotionally and spiritually, don't be thrown off course. With all of the junk you see around you, with all of the troubles in this life that can make you doubt yourself, doubt others, lose faith in people, and perhaps lose faith in God, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. There is a lot of things, there are a lot of things that we put effort into in this life that do not ultimately matter. Whether it would be a big house, a nicer car, a, a better paying job, a bigger retirement, a bucket list of vacations, ultimately those things do not matter. But the other things there are things in this life that have eternal consequences. Those things are found in relationships and in service and in putting others before yourself for the cause of Christ, okay? It's not in vain. So, we know that at this last trumpet, Christ is going to come back. Everybody who is dead will be raised. We will be made incorruptible, imperishable, immortal. But then what comes next? The scriptures talk about the millennium. A millennium simply means 1,000 years. Another author lays this out for us, and here's where this fits. Go back. Here's the timeline again. Run, just fill that all in for me. Here's the 1,000 years. We see that there's the tribulation down here. Jesus returns at that seventh trumpet. The dead in Christ are raised first. Then we have 1,000 years. This is what the scriptures say. In the book of Revelation... John is having a picture and a vision of the future. And this is what it says. And I saw an angel. This is John describing his vision. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having a key to the abyss. Seth, what's the abyss? I have no clue. Okay, we just don't know. But notice how it's used. He has a key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. And he sees the dragon. Seth, there's dragons? Let him explain. That ancient serpent. Oh, like a snake? Yeah. Who is the devil or Satan? Okay, so there's this imagery. You remember from Genesis, the serpent tricks Adam and Eve into sinning, Satan. At the end here, this angel shows up and what? Bound him for a thousand years. So whatever that means, if it's a literal abyss and a literal chain, we don't know. But he, his impact and his influence is paused, suspended, paralyzed for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him. Why? To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. So when Jesus comes back, dead Christians are raised in that resurrection. It said the dead in Christ. Not everybody is raised at that point. Dead Christians and Christians who are still alive, we will be made immortal. For what purpose? Well, here's the cool part. For this thousand-year period, when Satan is locked up, we will reign on the earth with him. Here's why I say that. He goes on in that same passage. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death, what's the second death? Well, you've already died, right? We're all destined to die once, but there is a second death, which we'll talk about. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, 
and will reign with him for a thousand years. <laughs> I think that's awesome. I don't know what that means exactly, other than we will have some sort of administrative duties walking around as immortal people, serving, administrating, judging, whatever it is, running the place with a whole bunch of mortal people walking around. That doesn't get a lot of airplay because it's just a little bit too weird to think about, but it certainly seems to be the biblical picture. In fact, <clears throat> this is what Paul says about us in this time period, back in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? In other words, judging it means here not pronouncing judgment, but making discerning judgments, decisions, administering. And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? And in this context, Paul is simply saying, look, don't sue people in the church. Figure it out. Don't treat each other like the world treats you, because if you one day are going to be running the whole world, you can figure out how to figure out, you know, little things in your church and who should get paid to do this. And if somebody you felt like underserved you and don't sue each other, work it out. He says, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? In other words, looking at what Paul understands will happen is during this time frame, we will even be set over the angels to some extent. That now we are not over angels, but we will be elevated through the resurrection to a point where we will have status over them and we'll have authority over them. God will trust us with the decision-making, not only over the world, but even over angels. So anyway, then all hell breaks loose, literally. Here we go in verse 7, back to the revelation. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, and that's a reference to something Ezekiel says in the Old Testament. And gather them for battle. In number, they're like the sand on the seashore, and they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. We know from other contexts that the city God loves throughout the scriptures is Jerusalem. So what we have here is at the end of that thousand years, Satan is let loose. He has incredible impact, obviously recruiting thousands and thousands of peoples to go to battle against Jerusalem. They will surround the city. It will be a dire time. And then it says, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. <laughs> Which if you're a little bit sadistic like me, I think that's awesome. Do you remember Indiana Jones where he's standing there in the street and the guy comes out with the big sword and he pulls out the gun, bam? That's what it is. They're like, oh, we're going to get Jerusalem. And God's going to say, done. Anyway, okay. The Bible is way fun. You should read it. So verse 10, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast, and that's a reference to the Antichrist, and the false prophet, again, the Antichrist henchman, the first general, whatever, had been thrown, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So there are three individuals, Satan, the Antichrist, and his false prophet, who the scriptures say specifically will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Nobody else is tormented day and night forever and ever. These three individuals, according to the scriptures, are the only three who have some type of perpetual punishment into the ages of the ages. In fact, that's what it says, where it says forever and ever. It's aeonian, aeonian, into the ages of the ages. Now, 
at this point, we come to the second resurrection. Am I going slow enough? I know I'm just, I'm rolling through this. But good for you, there's an outline in your bulletin, and we'll put all these slides up on the website. Now, as we go into this passage further in Revelation 20, after Satan, the beast, and the false prophet are thrown into this pit of burning sulfur over here, then, verse 11, this is John again describing what he sees, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And this is why it's called the great white throne judgment, because this is what happens before this throne. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So there is another resurrection where believers and non-believers are standing before the throne of God, being judged, what? According to what they had done, which were written in these books. And there is a book of life, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, which is interesting because Hades gets translated into English as hell. So the grave and hell are going to give up the dead. Ah, see, I knew people went to hell. But notice this. And each person was judged according to what they had done. And then death and Hades, or death and hell, were thrown into the lake of fire. Wait a second, I thought hell was a lake of fire. It's not. Hell is the grave. It's where you are buried. It is where you sleep in death until the resurrection. What we traditionally think of as hell is not the burning hot fireplace. That's the lake of fire, distinct from hell, because what we have is hell being thrown into the fire which means that hell is not the fire. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? Okay. Trust me, the Bible will mess you up. Now, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. And we can have a lot of discussion about annihilationism or whatever that means, but essentially Jesus says that when the wicked are thrown into the fire, they are burned up like chaff. That's the wording that Jesus uses, that there is not perpetual torment forever and ever. The three, Satan, false beast, and the Antichrist, are tormented day and night forever and ever. Everyone else who is not given life in the coming age is burned up like chaff. Verse 15, anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, so we're tracking with everything. We've got a lot of bad years of Antichrist tribulation. Jesus comes back. Then there's a thousand years because when Jesus comes back, the dead in Christ are raised and those who are still alive are left until the coming of the Lord. We're changed and made immortal. We reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years when Satan is bound. At the end of the thousand years, Satan's let loose. And, there's, and that's typically what we refer to as Armageddon. They all come in battle against Jerusalem. God wipes them out. Then everybody is raised from the dead. Believers and non-believers, right? Of course, there's no believers left, but maybe anybody who died during that thousand years. They're judged, and anybody not found to be in the book of life because they were believers in Christ were thrown into the lake of fire. Great. So what happens after that? Paul writes about that back in 1 Corinthians. Here's what he says. Verse 24, then the end will come. So he's talking about what we just described. When he hands over the kingdom to God. 
And he's talking about Jesus handing over the kingdom to God because, back to our timeline, Jesus comes back. We reign with Christ because during his reign on the earth, where is God? In heaven. We're reigning with Christ. And then the end will come. And Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. That's what we just read, where death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. For he, this is talking about Jesus, must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we just read that from Revelation 20. And then Paul explains, in case you're confused about who the he and the him and the we and the they are. For he, and he quotes an Old Testament writer, has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, right? That everything was put under Jesus' feet. It is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. So do you understand that? That God has given Jesus authority over everything except himself. So when everything is under the control of Jesus, Paul says this is clear that that does not include God. Well, why? When he has done this, when he's conquered all the enemies, the Son himself will be made subject to him, meaning God, who put everything under him, under Jesus. Why? So that God may be all in all. And that phrase, again, shows up in Revelation 21, which we'll get to in a minute. Now, this is when we get to this phrase, John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life, or life eternal, eternal life, life in the coming age. We've said this, that eternal life is life in the coming age, or specifically uh, age-long life or life age, however you want to you know, w- word those around. But this happens, what Christ calls the kingdom of God. Here's what the scripture says about that. How are we doing on time? What's the time? All right, here we go. <clears throat> Revelation 21. And what we find is, after Christ has ruled on the earth for a thousand years, then there's the judgment... The dead who are not in Christ are thrown into the lake of fire. Then we have this new heavens and new earth, and he hands it over to God the Father. Here's a picture of what that looks like. John continues relaying to us the vision that he has, and he says in Revelation 21, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So what we experience now... Glacier National Park, Great Smoky Mountain National Park, the Bahamas, the Eastern China Sea, Australia. Everything that we know is going to be redone and remade in some way. And then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. In other words, we don't go there. There comes here. Remember what Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth, as it is in heaven. And here is that picture. God's kingdom coming to the earth. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them and be their god 
Again, the Bible begins with God living on earth with man. And it ends with God living on earth with man. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The old order of things is what you experience now. It's what Paul calls the present evil age. That's why we have prayer times in our service because life is broken, but it will not... Not always be that way. So verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Everything new. Everything new. Seth, what that's, what's that going to be like? Well, it's pretty cool. He gives us some images. If you, you know, take the time yourself. Revelation 21 and 22, the rest of that chapter, there's the last two chapters of the Bible. Uh, he describes what he sees in the vision and, and what the new earth is like and this new city of Jerusalem. And he, he gives us the size and the measurements of the city and how many gates there are. And he describes the, you know, building materials. They talk about a city of gold. It really is. And there's emeralds and diamonds. And, and it's interesting because it describes God and Jesus as being the source of light like there's not even a sun when he remakes everything because there's no need of it uh, do you remember when Moses came down off of the the um, Mount Sinai having been in the presence of God and and he glowed I don't know if you remember that story but you know people were scared of him because he glowed just having been close to him because God is light the scripture says and uh, and what's interesting is in in the last chapter it says in the middle of the city there is a tree of life where's the tree of life first show up Garden of Eden, right? And, and then because of sin, we're cut off from it, but it's going to be right in the middle of what God has. So it's like Eden is restored. The Bible begins with God living on earth with man in perfection. It ends with God living on earth with man in perfection. And, and notice what it says. Here's just a couple verses from Revelation 22. Uh, he's quoting Jesus. He says, look, I am coming soon, and my reward is with me. Remember, you know, store up treasures in heaven, and, and we want, you know, a crown of life, and, and he's going to prepare a place for us. Jesus is like, hey, my reward, all that stuff you've been storing up in heaven, I'm bringing it back. I'm bringing it with me. This is the city of Jerusalem. It, it, it's all coming. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. Verse 14, blessed are those who have the right to the tree of life, because those are the people that have been given life in the coming age, age-long life eternal life, and they may go through the gates into the city. In verse 17, let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And in some ways, baptism is that exact thing. It is the free gift through the water of life. It's through the waters of baptism that we're clothed with Christ and we have access to all of that. So, what does that mean for us? I, I know sometimes that we, we can get so focused on like getting the details that we miss the implication. I think there are a couple of things that this means for us, if, if I can have a couple more minutes. One is we can quit blaming God for all the evil in the world. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people are like, well, I'm fed up with God because my aunt died or because my son has this or because my wife left or whatever it is and doggone it, I'm mad at God. You can quit blaming him 
for all the evil that we experience. Because the fact that his son is coming back reminds us that the world is not as God wants it. It's not his fault. We're the one that messed it up. And so, of course, people get sick. Of course, people die. Of course, things don't turn out. Of course, we get ripped off by dishonest people. Of course. Why are we so surprised by that? And when our little lives get all wrinkled up and we get mad at God, we freak out. We don't have to. It's not his fault. In fact, he's so concerned about what's broken in your life as he wants to fix it. And he's planned to send his son back. So at Christmas, we're reminded of Christ's birth. And his birth reminds us that he's coming again. He came once. He'll come again. Most of us ought to fall on our knees every Sunday and just say, I am so grateful. You know, I've had 24 hours of health. I've got a roof over my head. I've got plenty to eat. I may or may not have family around me. You know, whatever it is that we have, we can be grateful. We are so blessed in this country, we hardly notice anymore. Okay, you got to move. Secondly, we can look forward to his return. We don't have to fear that. I remember being a single guy saying, eh, don't come back till I get married, right? I mean, there's things that you want to look forward to because you think it's going to be so awesome. But the reality is nothing can compare to what he'll bring. It's worth longing for. It's worth pining for. It's worth waiting for. But I also think this is true, that we can spend less time settling into this life And more time. It matters. <laughs> Folks, I, I don't know how to communicate it strongly enough. But there's more to this life than this life. And I like the stuff in this life as much as you do, boy. 60 inches plasma is awesome. <laughs> Eight cylinders, overhead cam, 3,000 square feet, whatever. It's awesome. And I want as much of it as I can have. But it's going to burn. it's not going anywhere except the way. And so I don't have to get so latched onto it that I get angry when it disappears or when I don't get as much of it as I want because there's more coming. Man, if I could just get people to think about that on Tuesdays. If I could just get people to be reminded of that on Friday. Not just Sunday morning. Boy, this is all extra. I remember seeing um, an illustration. uh, Francis Chan did this one time with with a rope. It was a long rope, and it went clear off the stage. And and basically, it was just a picture of our lives in in all of eternity. And the lives that we live now, the 70 years, like this much of this front end of the rope. And we get all concerned and wrapped up about this much. 
and how much we have and who gets elected and what's my degree and where we live and if I get married and how many kids and how much I make and where I retire. And it's this long of it. There's so much more. There's so much more. So where does that leave us? I just want to read one passage of scripture because I would say this, one more thing. That we need to live today (laughs) as if tomorrow is coming. Because tomorrow is coming. The day of the Lord is sure. I have not seen God fail to come through one time ever on one of his promises. He may take a lot longer than I want, but he's coming through with it. Notice what Peter says. Before I read this, there are two pitfalls that we run the risk of falling into. One is that we get so focused on the future that we forget to live well now. Like, all of this is so true, and it is important to me, but we can get so focused on what's going to come that we forget to care about people who live next door to us. We can get so focused on what Jesus is going to do that we forget to do anything. That we can get so focused on the future that we forget about the present. But on the flip side, we can get so wrapped up on what we experience now in this life that we live as if Jesus is never coming back. And notice what Peter says about that. He says, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Right? Like We don't even believe the Bible's true. Like all these things, he said he's going to come back, he didn't come back. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. And we know that that attitude is out there. Like the world has gone on, it's billions and billions of years old, and nothing's ever going to change, and it's just a cultural made-up, whatever. Marx said religion is the opiate of the masses. Verse 5, but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed, referencing Noah and the ark and how God had to start over. And by the same word, meaning the word of God, the present heavens and earth, that's what we live with, are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And we just unpacked a lot of scriptures about that. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient. He's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, like, God doesn't want to throw anybody in a lake of fire. But everyone to come to repentance. Like, you want to be upset about something, be upset about the things that upset God. And what upsets him is that there are people who do not choose him. But that day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with the roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth And everything done in it will be laid bare. Not just everything will be laid bare, but everything done in it. If you think you have a secret, it is coming out, baby. There is nothing that will not be exposed to the light. And since everything, he says, will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. 
as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, just wanting it to be here. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Christmas is the most wonderful time of year because it is a reminder of what patience brings. The Jewish people had patience to wait for their Messiah to be born. We wait with patience for our Messiah and Savior to be revealed. And his patience means salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you so much for all that you have done for us already by providing us with your son to pay for our salvation, to pay for our sins. And and Lord, we also look forward to the promises yet fulfilled. And we don't know when that will happen, but you've given us some glimpses We long for that day. We live right now with a world that's broken, and we each have pain. And sometimes holidays remind us of the things that are not right. But they should also point us to the time when you will make it right. Make all things right. May that day come sooner rather than later. And may we, in the meantime, live our lives well and represent you in such a way that more and more people would find solace and peace in you with our influence. We pray that we would represent you well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.